Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include Halloween fun, my interview with Andrew Lippett, CEO and founder of Secure Insight on the need for fraud tools in a down market, and it's Fed Week with the latest rate hike decision due on Wednesday. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Candor Technology, home of the One Touch Underwrite, supporting lenders from point of sale to post close QC to reduce repurchase risk, increase underwriter productivity by 400%, and decrease turn times by 10 days. At the ready for tonight's Halloween fun, polls seem to indicate that the most popular treat is Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, followed by Reese's Miniatures, Twix, Kit Kat, and Snickers. Regardless of treats being handed out at doorsteps, there are ticks in an unfortunate affordable housing situation that is an example of the difficulty of implementing housing programs. About 5,600 people live in the ski town of Vail, Colorado, but during the busy season, thousands of people work there. And there aren't enough nearby places to live for that workforce. Right now, there's an estimated deficit of 6,000 beds for the workforce in the county, and in order to address that, the ski resort Vail sought to build a project on site to house 165 employees. The town's existing population got upset, as many residents don't want new housing in the town, and filed a petition in the county court to exercise eminent domain to seize a site and hold it as open space, citing the plight of bighorn sheep. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> For today's interview, I wanted to welcome to the show Andrew Lippett, CEO and founder of Secure Insight, the mortgage industry's first tech firm to focus on wire fraud and closing fraud. The company supervises millions of closings for lenders without a loss and houses a risk database of more than 80,000 professionals in all 50 states. Andrew has more than 25 years of experience in the mortgage industry as an attorney, consultant, platform speaker, and panelist addressing mortgage fraud, as well as legal, regulatory, and compliance matters. He's written industry articles on various fraud and regulatory issues for the Mortgage Press, National Mortgage Professional, National Mortgage News, the Credit Union Times, the ABA Journal, and his own blog at www.secureinsightblog.com. Halloween. Halloween. I don't know what to make of that. Halloween. Well, Halloween. It's better than April Fool's Day. That's true. Halloween and fraud may go together because everyone's everyone's being something... That's it. Mm-hmm. You could play some scary music. Wow, she nails on the chalkboard. So let's let's talk about fraud tools. Give me give what like um, give me the give me the elevator pitch or, or what's going on in the the fraud space right now. Everyone understands clearly what's going on in the marketplace right now. Uh, we we went within eighteen months from one of the greatest mortgage markets in the history of the industry to one of the worst. And that whiplash is reverberating throughout the industry right now. Um, you know, lenders obviously seeing um, lower margins, they're seeing lower volume. Uh, but from our perspective as fraud fighters, what we see is uh, that when the market is down, lenders are seven times more likely to be victims of fraud. Now, why is that? That's because a number of things. First, lenders tend to lay off staff. So you have less people looking at things, less people being diligent. Um, some lenders view compliance tools as luxuries and not necessities. And so they tend to cut the luxuries, which means they're exposing themselves more to potential harm. Um, but I would also uh, 
say that, you know, loan origination fraud is on the uptick because there's less loans to be originated. There are a lot of people who um, got used to making a lot of money in the industry. And so there's always a temptation to kind of push things through that may, they may not have thought were good deals in the past or encouraging people to do deals that probably aren't good for them. And at the end of the day, um, lenders are seeing um, an upswing in lower quality loans. And if they're pushing them through, they're starting to see some repurchase demands and uh, defect issues. And let's talk, let's talk about your company permit. What are y'all working on uh, and how does that fit into all this? Well, we were the first company to focus on wire fraud and closing table fraud in the industry uh, over 10 years ago. Uh, we were concerned that lenders did a heck of a good job addressing fraud at the front end of the origination process through underwriting and processing. And then when it came to the closing table, you know, they kind of just stopped. Um, unfortunately, at the closing table, there are individuals who are professionals who have access to a uh, lender's wire uh, funds, wired funds. Uh, they have access to the uh, lender's mortgage proceeds, their collateral security documents, and the consumer's non-public personal information. And all that creates the potential for harm. And so we thought it would be best to come up with a process to vet and monitor uh, these professionals because they're in a large different uh, you know, variety of disciplines. You have attorneys, title agents, escrow officers, notaries. They have different um, backgrounds, different levels of education, uh, different um, licensing, insurance, bonding requirements. And so we established a process to level the playing field and to give lenders the ability to know who they were doing business with. So it was kind of a no before you close type of thing. And so, so we have been over the last number of years building a database of 80,000 plus professionals in all 50 states. And our clients are able to check that database before they close so they know who they're dealing with. And we're proud to say that we've supervised, we believe about 17 million residential closing transactions with zero losses from wire fraud or any other kind of loss that would have occurred using one of our uh, vetted and monitored uh, closing agents. I want to get back to talking about how now more than ever fraud tools are important. So why is it that in down markets there's a rise in incidents of fraud? Well, because I think lenders take their eyes off of the ball, right? They're more they're, they're more focused on the drop in their bottom line. They're focused on, you know, how can I reduce my overall cost of operating so I can maintain profitability and stay in business? Um, and when they do that, sometimes what happens is um, the quality control suffers. And furthermore, the people who originate loans who were used to uh, very easily generating large volumes of business, which, you know, correspondingly resulted in a large increase in their income, all of a sudden see the volume drop. And so you know, as I mentioned before, what ends up happening is loans they might have turned away. They start trying to figure out ways to close them. And from my experience in the industry, which is 30 plus years, that's like renting money. Right. So we're going to close everything that we can and maybe not be as concerned about quality control. 
Um, and that'll generate revenue in the short term. But what ends up happening is when those loans are then sold, they tend to come back from investors. Um, so, you know, I just was talking to a lender today who had an, an owner occupancy uh, fraud issue. And if you looked at the file, because I, you know, I've had a lot of experience dealing with in, in the industry for many years, and I was going over the file with them as, a, as a, just a courtesy. And there were so many red flags that were missed. And I think that, you know, again, it's just a situation of taking your eyes off the ball. So there's different there's different types of fraud. There's wire fraud and there's cyber fraud. Can you explain how both of those apply to the mortgage industry? Sure. Um, well, wire fraud very specifically involves someone stealing uh, wired funds, and usually that's done through intercepting and changing wiring instructions sometime before the closing. And it can impact either the settlement agent or it can impact the lender or it can impact parties to the transaction, the real estate agent. Somehow, some way, has been, someone has been able to uh, hack into an account, disguise themselves as one of the parties, substitute wiring instructions, some money, whether it's the mortgage proceeds um, from the lender to the table, or it's from the table out the door to various parties, somewhere, somehow in that process, that money is intercepted by the wrong party and the funds are stolen and they're lost. And so that can result in, you know, all kinds of harm. Uh, and, and so that is the type of uh, significant loss, the theft of funds through wire fraud that has the biggest impact on a lender, although it's the lowest incident. So we don't see wire fraud happening every day, but we do, when it does happen, it makes the news and it can cripple a company. Um, you know, when you talk about kind of like cyber fraud, I think it's a kind of a, that's a broader subject and it could encompass all kind of data privacy and data security issues. So lenders are also obligated to have security measures in place to prevent the unlawful interception and access by third parties to non-public personal information. And lenders accumulate all kinds of information like that, right, in the loan manufacturing process. So they're getting a borrower's name, address, social security number, places where they work, date of birth, um, you know, all kinds of personal information. And that information is stored somewhere and people have access to it. And so lenders need to uh, have policies in place to prevent both internal uh, improper access, that means their own staff only need to know should have access, and then external penetrations from third parties who might be uh, gaining, a gaining access to their loan uh, operating systems or their wherever they're storing their data, whether it's being done locally or in a cloud somewhere. So you know, it, this is a time when IT departments are very important because they need to have the types of protections in place to prevent that from happening. It sounds like when people think of fraud, they think of origination, but it, it really is more than just origination. <clears throat> you mentioned closing. Where else do we see it for mortgage companies? Fraud can involve um, uh, straw buyers. It can involve uh, foreclosure bailouts. There's short sale fraud. There is loan origination fraud. Fraud for profit and fraud for housing are the two different types of origination. So fraud for profit would be 
like straw buyer, you know, trying to essentially uh, steal the proceeds through a, a false or fake transaction or using fake parties. Fraud for housing, which I think they're seeing an increase in now because we're trying to, some people are trying to make loans happen that don't work and they wouldn't have done it, you know, a year ago. That's where someone does not really qualify for a loan. I, I mentioned earlier that I'd spoken to a client who had an owner occupancy fraud issue. So rather than applying for a loan as a second home or investment property, in order to get a better rate and better terms, they claimed that it was own, owner occupied. However, they had never had any intention of occupying it. Um, and so, um, you know, that's a different type of fraud. So, and then, then we get into the, the wire fraud and we get into the closing table fraud. Um, some of the more complicated frauds can involve title. You know, we've, we've seen in the past incidents, for example, where title policies have been modified to remove existing liens. Um, so that at the closing table, the liens are not paid off and the money's then stolen or taken either by the settlement professional or someone else. And then when the lender, uh, you know, finds out later that they don't have a first priority lien, there's a big problem. So those are the, the different types of frauds that we've historically seen. Uh, I've seen them in the last 30 years. And they really none of the, the schemes have really changed much. You know, the fraud today is from the fraud yesterday from years ago. It's just how folks go about it that's a little different. And so we're seeing more highly high technology uh, driven fraud aspects. And can you discuss the emergence of a digital mortgage platform and remote online notarization? So look, there's no question that the industry, the banking industry as a whole is moving towards total, a totally digital financial uh, environment. I mean, we see that we've seen that in the past with cryptocurrency. And while the government is trying to regulate it more, Recently, the government has passed um, there. I think President Biden signed an executive order um, that is going to start moving um, us towards a digital currency. That's the wave of the future. As it impacts the mortgage industry um, and something more immediate, we saw during COVID that there was a real, real excitement generated around remote online notarization and electronic notarizations. And there was a real need for that, right, because people were not getting together at a closing table. And so lenders had to figure out a way to have closings take place without people being, you know, in close proximity one another. So there was a lot of excitement about that. And a lot of governments, state governments passed laws saying that, you know, they would allow attorneys and settlement professionals to do remote online notarizations and electronic closings. The problem is no one really knew how to do it. Remote online notarizations, electronic closing have been out there for quite a while, and there's been a slow but steady movement towards it. But lenders kind of knew about it. <clears throat> lenders kind of heard about it, but they didn't really know how to do it. And they had a difficult time finding a professional that knew also the process and how to actually perform in an electronic or remote uh, environment. Um, so today we fast forward and we've seen that a lot of states have now passed legislation uh, permitting uh, remote online notarization. Uh, there's a bill before Congress to create national standards for it that it will likely be passed, I think. 
Um, and we're slowly starting seeing companies uh, like Doc Magic and SnapDocs and Bravazo and others who are offering the ability to do remote online notarization as part of a closing package uh, that they offer to lenders. However, there's still a, a an absence of a wide a group of people who actually know how to do this. But that's that's here and it's growing. And within the next few years, you're just going to see more and more and more of that. Um, and, you know, so the obvious question then is, well, what about blockchain, right? And so blockchain is a very interesting concept. Um, I don't buy into the the uh, claim that blockchain is going to eliminate fraud totally because fraud says always figure out ways to get around any kind of process. But it does establish a pretty secure way of siloing data and information so that only people with a need to know can access it. I think it's probably going to be several years before something that like that really takes a hold in the industry. The mortgage industry is very slow to adopt new changes. Um, it's been three years and Ron still isn't widely accepted, uh, even though it's slowly starting to gain steam. I think a lot of people hear blockchain and their eyes glaze over and they don't really know what it means. Uh, we have been preparing at Secure Insight for it because we have this huge database of uh, vetted and monitored professionals. And we have actually have spent the money to develop a process to give them a secure key so that when blockchain becomes more prevalent, uh, the major lenders don't have to build a database of validated uh, closing professionals. They, we, they can simply allow our people to use their secure key to enter into those uh, ledgers or those blocks in the process where they uh, need to get access. So, so digital's here in the form of RON, electronic closings. It's happening. It's growing every day. Uh, blockchain is, uh, is in the future, but I believe it's inevitable also. And how does fraud fit into to blockchain? It's, I mean, I've said for a while that blockchain is the perfect application for, for mortgages are the perfect application for blockchain because uh, it ensures data integrity as you as you sell yeah. But how does fraud fit in, in your opinion? Probably, if I had to guess, it's going to be in the area of individuals being able to, thr through some electronic means, disguise themselves as a vetted party um, and then getting access to one of the ledgers or one of the blocks of data in the process and um, one or more of them and then somehow utilizing that to the harm of one or more of the parties. That's why what we do, I think, is very important because we we would um, control, so to speak, one of the key people or parties or entities that are involved in handling the money, documents, and personal information in that process. And by giving them a secure key that we've developed, anyone who works with them will know that they are who they say they are. But um, if I had a guess, it would probably be, you know, the, the the fraud aspect would be the similar thing that is going on now with wire fraud that is somehow being able to break into part of the electronic process and disguising themselves as one of the parties and then not that not being um, picked up by uh, the platform. And finally, for those that are interested in fraud tools, 
where's the best place to start? How do they how do they go about beefing up their arsenal? Well, I think they need to step back and do an evaluation as as to a what they need to do from a compliance standpoint, because a lot of the fraud tools are required by regulatory compliance standards. So what what rules apply to them? You know, Fannie, Freddie, HUD, um, whether it's the CFPB, the NCUA, um, uh, or uh, the OCC, depending on what type of institution they are, have all have certain guidelines. So start there to make sure that they are addressing that. And then look at the overall uh, operational structure of their company to see where they have gaps and where they have risks. Um, you know, management should know where they've had uh, problems in the past, and they should make sure they have enough uh, tools in place to help prevent fraud. Uh, when it comes to closing table fraud and wire fraud, I think the evaluation has to be, do we have the ability, do we have the funding, do we have the subject matter expertise to be able to do this ourselves? And I think for most people, the answer is going to be no. Uh, they need to focus on originating loans and sales and dealing with operational issues. And it's much easier to outsource uh, you know, closing and wire fraud and closing fraud to an out, uh, you know, a third party such as Secure Insight. So we found that in the past that most people, when they did the evaluation, you know, how much will it cost for us to really do this? How efficient and effective will it be? Will it be? Will it pass muster in an audit? And then when they compare it to being able to outsource, they they realize that it's just much easier to turn over to a trusted third party. Awesome. Andrew, thank you very much for the time today. Appreciate the discussion. Thank you, Robbie. Pleasure being on your show and I'm, uh, I hope we can get a chance to talk again. Sounds good. Turning to the markets, the Federal Reserve Bank's Policymaking Committee, the FOMC, is expected to raise rates at its November 1st and 2nd meeting and keep a hawkish tone with a steady stream of inflationary data coming in since the September meeting. Expectations are for the FOMC to keep its options open rather than provide guidance that the pace of rate hikes is slowing down in December. There are no new economic projections released at the November meeting, so all the action will be in the FOMC statement and Chair Powell's press conference. Kansas City Fed President George is seen dissenting in favor of a smaller rate hike, and it's also been observed that in recent weeks, Vice Chair Brainerd has voiced concerns over the pace and magnitude of the global monetary policy tightening underway, and San Francisco Fed President Daly said there at least should be a discussion about slowing down the pace. Chair Powell is expected to highlight a wait-and-see stance about the December meeting decisions. Treasury sold off to close last week, snapping their three-day streak of gains. The contradictions in the U.S. economy keep piling up. Economic output rebounded following two quarterly contractions, inflation remains stubbornly high, but unemployment is at historic lows. The U.S. economy returned to growth in the third quarter after six months of decline, but there were also signs of a slowdown as the factors underlying the 2.6% GDP growth aren't robust enough to dispel recession concerns. Economists point to how the 2.6% increase in GDP in the third quarter has more to do with rising exports than anything else. The Commerce Department report also revealed that one measure of inflation fell in recent months. No matter how you slice it, recession avoided, recession still coming, recession avoided and still coming, it's still a very strange economic situation. And it's bad news for economic officials fighting inflation. Prices, as well as wages, are still rising quickly. 
The combination of the rising cost of living and the Federal Reserve's ongoing attempts to tackle it by hiking interest rates, thus strengthening the dollar and hurting exports, is still predicted to cause a recession. The highlights of this week's economic calendar include Wednesday's FOMC events and Friday's October payrolls report. Economic data of note includes Chicago PMI, ISM PMIs, construction spending, Jolt's job openings, ADP, challenger job cuts, trade productivity and unit labor costs, and factory orders. Besides the Fed, the RBA and BOE will release their latest monetary policy decisions. The week starts with a whimper, however, with the only data point coming in the form of the aforementioned Chicago PMI later this morning. We begin the day with agency MBS prices worth about an eighth, and the 10-year yielding 4.04 after closing last week at 4.01%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. I went to the cemetery last weekend to lay some flowers on a grave, and as I was standing there, I noticed four grave diggers walking around with a coffin. Three hours later, and they were still walking around with it. I thought to myself, they've lost the plot. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, Candor. Home of the One Touch Underwrite. Supporting lenders from point of sale to post-close QC to reduce repurchase risk, increase underwriter productivity by 400%, and decrease turn times by 10 days. Thanks again to Richie May, a recognized leader in providing specialized advisory, audit, tax, technology, and other services in the mortgage industry and in banking. To learn more, visit richiemay.com. about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.